Just then, a prophet or a man of God, a man of God from Judah sent by Yahweh arrived in Bethel as Jeroboam was standing near the altar ready to offer sacrifices. So in the Bible, the word man of God or the phrase man of God and the word prophet are synonymous. They're used interchangeably. Moses was called a prophet. He was also called a man of God. So those two, that phrase and that word are used interchangeably and they're synonymous. So when you see the word man of God, you must think prophet. So this prophet, right in the middle of sacrificing to the golden calves, Jeroboam is sitting there in all of his priestly, kingly robes, whatever he's wearing, and the man of God arrives on the scene. We're not told his name. We're never told his name. With authority, chapter 13, verse 2. With the authority of Yahweh, he cried out against the altar. O altar, altar, this is what Yahweh says. Look, a son named Josiah will be born to the Davidic dynasty. He will sacrifice on you, the priests of the high places, who offer sacrifices on you. Human bones will be burned on you. That day, he also announced a sign. This is a sign that Yahweh has predetermined. The altar will split open and the ashes on it will fall out on the ground. So this guy just shows up and all that power and all that authority of the king. It says the prophet spoke with the authority of Yahweh. He became the mouthpiece of Yahweh. Remember, the whole purpose of a prophet is to speak the will of Yahweh to the people. And cries out against the altar, and he says, Here is the prophecy. One day, a descendant of David by the name of Josiah will come, and he will burn on this altar the bodies and the bones of all the priests who have ever promoted this religion. And then he will destroy the golden calves and destroy the religion. That's the prophecy. Now, to burn bodies is to desecrate them and in a symbolic sense, send them to hell. Now, that doesn't mean if you burn a body, it's going to hell. You have no power over that. But when God says, I want these bodies burned, what he's trying to communicate is, you're not being buried. There is no, you're desecrated. You're not being gathered to your ancestors. Your bones aren't being gathered into a tomb. This is not an anti-cremation message. This is a cultural understanding. And their culture, bodies are very sacred. And to burn them or leave them unburied is a desecration. And it is a way of saying, I curse you even in the afterlife. I curse you even in the afterlife. And when you do it, it means nothing. But when God does it, it means everything. And that's what God is saying about these priests. This altar will be desecrated. Now, every single prophecy must have a sign to validate it. Every single prophecy. Josiah is not going to come for a couple hundred years. So for whatever reason, God's going to wait a long time before Josiah rises up. And so I can predict in the year 2050, America is going to be devastated by Russia. But most of us really won't be around for that, maybe. And if we are around for it, that's a long time to wait before you realize whether I'm right or wrong. And I could give a whole lot of other prophecies in the meantime that you don't know about. So every prophecy requires an immediate sign that is immediately fulfilled 
in order to prove that this prophet is truly speaking on God's behalf. So his sign to prove this long-term prophecy is that altar is going to split open in a matter of seconds. And all the ashes that accumulated it are going to fall out. Now, that's incredible because this altar is going to, it's big enough to throw entire animals on it. We're talking about ox. And the whole body of an ox can fit on this altar and then be incinerated quickly because the flames are intense. And if this stone altar just spontaneously cracks open and ashes explode out, that is truly a supernatural act. It's truly a supernatural act. So that's what he prophesied. Verse 4, when the king heard what the prophet cried out against the altar of Bethel, Jeroboam standing at the altar extended his hand and ordered, seize him. And the hand that he extended, it shriveled up and he could not pull it back. And then at that moment, the altar split open and the ashes fell out on the ground in fulfillment of the sign of the prophet that it was announced by Yahweh's authority. So he got a two for one deal. <laughs> he got two signs that validate this. Now, the significance of it is, is the right arm in the ancient world is considered the arm of authority. So this is the hand that you have your scepter in, the hand that the judge has the gavel in for today's Spaniards, that kind of stuff. And the idea is that he's extending his authority, and he's challenging the authority of Yahweh, and he's saying, seize him. Now, the whole point of seizing him is to kill him. Now, remember, this man is the image of Yahweh. He is the mouth of Yahweh. So Jeroboam is basically saying, kill Yahweh. At the worst, at best, he's saying, kill the entire word of Yahweh so he's never heard again. That's evil. There is no sin that you can commit that I don't think will go any higher than that. Let's just kill God or kill his kingdom or kill his word. I want to erase the kingdom of God off the earth. Now, he's not going that far, but he's saying, I don't want it in my kingdom. I don't want it in my kingdom. So what does God do? Instantaneously, he shrivels up his authority. And not only does his hand shrivel up, meaning that it's inept, but then it gets stuck there so that it becomes forever humiliating. Everybody will see it. You can't hide. Most people, when their hands shrivel up, it usually shrivels up, and then people try to hide them in gloves or in jackets, that kind of stuff. But when your arm also petrifies and gets stuck like that, there is no hiding that. There is no hiding that. So who really has the authority? And then the altar split open. Yahweh. The king pled with the prophet, Seek the favor of Yahweh your God and pray for me so that my hand may be restored. So the prophet sought Yahweh's favor, and the king's hand was restored to its former condition. This is amazing. I think this is one of the most amazing passages in the Bible when it comes to God's forgiveness. And I don't mean like, I think the prophets and what God does with Israel, holistically speaking, is more amazing than this. But as far as a, an event, a, a very small, short event, the way that God, this guy did not, this guy just said, kill Yahweh or kill his word, or erase his kingdom from my kingdom. I want nothing to do. He built a rival religion, tried to erase the presence of Yahweh in his exes. He built golden calves. All throughout the rest of kings, he's going to be considered the most evil king that ever lived until much later. He does not cry out for repentance. 
He does not admit that he's wrong, and he does not ask for forgiveness. He just pleads out in pain, heal me, God, and God mercifully heals him. That is mercy and grace. It is not deserved. He didn't even ask for it. There's no repentance. And he's challenged God more than any other figure in all of Israel. And God heals him. And what you have is a really great snapshot of both the ultimate sovereignty and power of Yahweh as well as the mercy and the grace of Yahweh that is not deserved. And remember I told you the one thing that makes Yahweh, well, there are many things, but one of the things that makes Yahweh absolutely unique to all other beings in the entire universe is that he is simultaneously all sovereign and powerful and a relational God who forgives you at the same time. There is no being who is both. There is no being who is both. And God demonstrates that here. Now, you would say he doesn't deserve it. But we don't deserve it either. But God displays the mercy and grace because perhaps this is the thing that will turn his heart back. See, sometimes God, God knows what you need. See, as parents, we're trying to guess whether our kids need a good disciplining or just a big hug. And we don't know whether we should overlook our sins and show them mercy and grace, and that's the thing that will turn their heart back because they're so overwhelmed by that mercy, or whether they just need a good kick in the rear end. And we can kind of figure it out through prayer and knowing their personality and what's worked in the past, but it's still a guessing game overall. But Yahweh knows exactly what people need and where they are. And sometimes he will smash people hard because that's what they need. And sometimes he'll give them grace and mercy that is completely undeserved because that's what they need. And that's what he shows Jeroboam. The king then said to the prophet, come home with me and have something to eat. I'd like to give you a present. But Yahweh said to the king, sorry, but the man of God said to the king, even if you were to give me half of your possessions, I could not go with you and eat and drink in this place. For Yahweh gave me strict orders, do not eat or drink there and do not come the way that you went, that, do not go home the way that you came. So he started back on another road and he did not travel back on the same road that he had taken to Bethel. Now God does not allow him to return back the same way and he's not allowed to eat with anybody. Now remember in the ancient world to eat with people is to make a covenant with them. And so God is forbidding to eat. Now, Jeroboam probably realizes, I have no authority. Okay? This did not work out well for me. But maybe I can schmooze him and flatter him. And we invite him to a meal and bring him in and give him a meal he's never had before. I mean, the prophets always look like mangy animals that came out of the wilderness. This guy needs to be taken care of. I'll give him wine and fruit like he's never had before. And he'll be so flattered and schmoozed that I can manipulate him in changing the prophecy. That is not an uncommon way of thinking in the ancient world. Many people believe that the prophets had the ability to speak judgments or blessings on their own free will. And the paganism, it does work that way. And the paganism, it is possible, like with Balaam, when we talked about him in Numbers 22, he was a prophet, and if he knew the right rituals and the right incantations and could use the right name of the God and sacrifice in the right way, you can manipulate the gods. You can feed the gods and satisfy them so much that you can manipulate them into favoring with you. So, why not offer a meal to the prophet and manipulate him into manipulating the God, Yahweh, 
to give me, which means Jeroboam has a pagan view of Yahweh. He never really knew Yahweh. But at the same time, it would also be a covenant meal. And it would be very confusing to the people for God, in the image of this prophet, to curse Jeroboam and then make a covenant with him. Nobody would take Yahweh seriously. Yahweh doesn't stick with his threats. When he says he's going to punish you, he doesn't actually follow through. And so God can't have that image portrayed. So God says, eat with no one. And return another way, probably most likely because they know maybe where you came from and I don't want them to know where you're going, and go back. And the prophet is obedient. The man of God is obedient. So at this point, Jeroboam's religion, he's left behind temporarily as we follow the prophet. And at this point, his religion stands completely condemned. And there is no doubt how Yahweh feels about it at this point. Verse 11. Now there was an old prophet living in Bethel. And when his sons came home, they told their father everything the prophet had done in Bethel and the day that all the words that he had spoken to the king. Their father asked them, which way did he take, which road did he take? And the sons showed him the road that the prophet from Judah had taken. He then told his sons, saddle the donkey for me. And when they had saddled the donkey for him, he mounted it and he took off for the prophet whom he found sitting under the oak tree. And he asked him, are you the prophet from Judah? He answered, yes, I am. He then said, come with me and eat with me at my home. The old prophet, we don't know whether he's good or bad. I told you at the very beginning when I was introducing this book, the prophets are going to start becoming, we don't know whether they're good or bad. And prophets can be good, they can be bad, just like humans can, just like Elohim can, just like anything can. And we're used to most of the prophets so far being good because every time they've done something, they've been pretty good. But the book of Kings, the waters are going to start getting muddy. And you're going to have to start trying to figure out, is this prophet good or bad? Is he for Yahweh or is he not? Now, the one hint that gives us that he's not a godly prophet so far, there's other things that are coming later, but the one hint that we have right now is what? He comes from Bethel where the golden calf is. And there's no way a man of God should be in Bethel. In fact, later on, when we get to Elisha, Elisha will intentionally avoid and bypass Bethel every time he walks by, even though it would be more convenient for him to go through Bethel. So this guy comes from Bethel. So already, you don't know whether he's good or bad, but already you've got some red flags going off. I don't like the fact that he lives in Bethel. And the other thing is he has a donkey. Now that doesn't make him bad, but that makes him extremely wealthy. And the question is why is a prophet extremely wealthy? It could be the prophet had a good successful business on his own. Like Amos, when we get to him later, he was a businessman who breeded sheep and was really wealthy, felt called by God to start preaching a message. Or it could be that he's corrupted, especially combined with the city of Bethel. So these are just kind of flags that come up in your head. So he goes and he says, come and eat with me. Now that's not bad, because if he doesn't know the word of Yahweh, how much did his sons really tell him? Eating meals is pretty normal. 
especially if you a prophet, I a prophet. Then he said, the man of God from Judah answered, yes, I am, sorry. But he replied, I cannot go back with you or eat and drink with you in this place, for Yahweh gave me strict orders. Do not eat or drink there. Do not go the way that you came. The old prophet then said, I too am a prophet like you. An angel told me, with Yahweh's authority, bring him back with you to the house that he can eat and drink. But he was lying to him. So the prophet went with him and ate and drank in his house. So right now you already know, now he's bad. He comes from Bethel and he's lying. And he's using the word of God to deceive a prophet of God. Now the prophet disobeyed God, point blank. And he goes back. But you can kind of sympathize with him a little bit. I mean, a prophet did come to him and say, Thus saith Yahweh, you should come with me. Maybe God changed his mind. Maybe it was only, don't eat with anybody up until this point. I mean, eventually, that rule, don't eat with anybody, cannot last forever. It's got to quit at some point. Now, the logical conclusion would be home. But what mistake did the prophet make other than disobedience? He didn't, he didn't ask for a sign. And he did not, or he did not ask God. I mean, this prophet has a direct link to Yahweh. He could have gone to Yahweh and said, is this true? Or he could have said, prove it. Give me a sign. Or he could have just said, no, I don't think you belong to God because God told me to return home. And he disobeys. What happens? When they were sitting, verse 20, at the table, Yahweh spoke through the old prophet. Now that kind of messes with you. He spoke through the old prophet, the one from Bethel, the one that lied. And he cried out to the prophet from Judah, This is what Yahweh says. You, man of God, you have rebelled against Yahweh, and you have not obeyed the command that Yahweh your God gave you. You went back and you ate and drank in this place, even though he said to you, Do not eat or do not drink. There your corpse will be, not be buried in your ancestral tomb. Unlike the previous prophets who are going to be burned on the altar, he will be allowed to be buried, but not in the tomb of his family, ancestors. You're like, wait a minute. This is a false prophet. He lies. He deceives. He's from Bethel. He represents the glowing calves. How in the world can God speak through this prophet? Because he can. He's Yahweh. Remember Balaam? He was not a man of God. He was not obedient. But God put the fear of God in him, literally, and said, you will speak my words and my words only. And seven times he prophesied in favor of Israel. God didn't approve of Saul, but he used Saul. And technically one could argue, how in the world is he ever able to use us? We're not worthy. We're sinful. We don't always obey God. There's been times that I've been disobedient and all that kind of stuff, and still God did an amazing thing with me. The words that he spoke and all that kind of stuff that come through me, and I know it was God because those things don't come into my head on my own. And yet I know it wasn't right with him at that day or that night or whatever. 
And so he can use anybody he wants. Is there a sign to this prophecy? Yeah, because this one's going to be a lot more immediate. <laughs> this is not a long-term prophecy. You're going to die. That's going to happen very quickly. So this word will be proved by that. When the prophet from Judah finished his meal, that would have been a very... Can you imagine all the emotions are going... You're sitting, you realize you're sitting in the house of the enemy. You've been lied to. You've been deceived. You disobeyed God. He just judged you. When you leave this house, you're going to die. And your last meal is with this guy who lied and deceived you and pronounced your judgment. I can imagine all the emotions that are going through you. And you're a godly man. He's a godly man. Not perfect, but godly. Notice that Yahweh also called this rebellion. You think, that was just a disobedience. It wasn't like he was shaking his fist at God and rebelling. But he knew the command of God and he chose to. That's rebellion. That's rebellion. Maybe not rebelling against the whole being of God and the whole counsel of God, but rebelling against that particular command. If I tell my daughters to do something and they're like, stomp their feet, I don't want to do that. They're not rebelling against me in my entirety, but they are rebelling against my command and what I want at that moment. As the prophet from Judah was traveling, a lion attacked him on the road and killed him. His body was lying on the road, and the donkey and the lion just stood there side by side. Some men came by and saw the corpse lying on the road and the lion standing beside it, and they went and reported what they had seen in the city where the old prophet lived. That was pretty instantaneous. That's a violent death. This lion just comes out of the woods, grabs him, throws him to the ground, and mauls him to death. And then the lion and the donkey just stand next to each other. Yes. (laughs) What point is that making? Lions don't hunt humans. Lions will kill a human if you invade that lion's territory. If it feels, if you go into its territory, its den, and you croach on its territory, you, or if it feels its cubs are threatened, they will attack in self-defense, but they don't come out of the woods and chase you down and hunt you. They don't maul you like that. That goes against their nature. But they do hunt donkeys. So the fact that it's going against its natural instinct means that it is supernatural. And it's a sign that this is God fulfilling his word. This wasn't just chance. It wasn't coincidence. It was the judgment of God. When the old prophet who had invited him to his house heard the news, he said, Is this not a prophet who rebelled against Yahweh? Yahweh delivered him over to the lion, and it ripped him up and killed him, just as Yahweh warned. He told his sons, saddle my donkey, and they did so. And he went and he found the corpse lying in the road with the donkey and the lion standing beside it. And the lion neither had eaten the corpse nor attacked the donkey. The old prophet picked up the corpse of the prophet, or the man of God, and put on the donkey and brought it back. And the old prophet then entered the city to mourn him and to bury him. He put the body into his own tomb, and they mourned over him, saying, Ah, my brother. After he buried him, he said to his sons, When I die, bury me in the tomb where the prophet is buried. Put my bones right beside his bones. For the prophecy announced with Yahweh's authority against the altar in Bethel and against all the temples and the high places in the cities of the north will certainly be fulfilled. 
So he does honor the prophet. He has respect for him. He buries him in his own tomb, which fulfills the prophecy of God, you won't be buried with your ancestors. Instead, you're buried with a false prophet. But at the same time, why is this guy being buried? Why did the old man put him in his own tomb? Because one day, Josiah is going to come and dig up all these bones and burn them on the altar. And maybe Josiah won't burn up my old bones because my bones are mixed with the man of God who's not under the curse. Maybe I can deceive God. So he lied to the prophet of God, and now he's trying to trick God because God is not good at bone sorting. (laughs) What's going on here? This is harsh. This is a man of God. And he just disobeyed one time. And his instant violent death. But at the same time, is that any different than Moses? Moses was the most righteous man that has ever lived as a prophet. And yet he disobeyed God one time and God killed him outside the land. God does not take disobedience of prophets lightly. Now with you and I, or with everyday normal people, he will show grace and grace and grace. But we don't speak the words of God. Or maybe. But we'll have to talk about the prophets later. In the ancient world, those people did not speak the words of God. They were not the image of God to all of Israel. They weren't held to the same standard. But the prophet is the highest authority in the land. And when he speaks something on God's behalf, it has to be right all the time. Imagine if I had the power to literally speak the words of God to you directly. Not just expound and help you understand the word of God. I may be right or wrong, whatever. But I literally am saying these are the words of God. And I'm not always right. How seriously that will mess up your life. In the ancient world, they didn't have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit only came on prophets and kings and priests. And the everyday normal person did not have the Spirit of God in them to say, that's not right, that's not right, that's not right. Didn't have anything to stir in them. They couldn't easily pray to God as easily as we can today. This is what makes the cross and Pentecost so unique for us. And so when the prophet comes in, when he speaks, it affects the entire nation. And if he speaks wrongly and the nation begins to follow that, it's not the people's fault. This is the wealth of God. This is the voice of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit and Yahweh can never be wrong. And all the people know is that's Yahweh's voice. And so if it's wrong, it'll screw the whole nation over. That's why God has to make it very clear this is not his voice anymore. And the judgment is always harsh. And it doesn't matter if you're the greatest prophet that has ever lived like Moses is going to become the template for the second coming for Jesus Christ. You're going to die. Because God can never be wrong. Now the other thing you must understand is the king is also the image of God. And Jeroboam has blatantly disobeyed God, and he's supposed to be the representation of Yahweh. And so the judgment on him is he's going to die, and his religion's going to be destroyed. 
Now, the death judgment doesn't come yet, but it is coming. All that is establishing one very important point. God will harshly judge his images. The images of the most ultimate image in Israel is king and priest. They have more influence and more power over the people than anybody else. And when they blatantly disobey God and blatantly lead the people away from God, they will die. That is not how he deals with every individual, but that's making two points. The first point is he has established the standard. Now as we go through all kings and all prophets for the rest of the book, you know what to expect. And is Yahweh consistent? Yes. So right off the bat, before Israel really goes downhill, Yahweh is establishing the standard, the baseline. This is how he deals with kings and prophets when they lead the people away from God or then they blatantly disobey. Because he cannot tolerate them falsely representing God to the people. Because if they aren't punished, they lead the people even further astray. Now he may delay their judgments like with Moses or Saul, because sometimes the delay of judgment is to punish the people even more. You wanted that kind of a king? Well, then here you go. But he will always judge them. The other thing he's establishing, too, is that in a way, Israel is also the image of God. Not on the same authoritative, ultimate example as the king and prophet are, but Israel is. So this becomes the first foreshadowing or the expectation of exile. And so what he's saying is what will immediately happen, relatively speaking, in the lifetime for king and prophet when they disobey, will eventually happen for you, Israel, in exile if you continue down this path. The road is longer for you because you're not as high up as king and prophet, but the road ends the same way. And this is what Yahweh is doing with these stories. He's establishing the standard for how he deals with his images that blatantly go against him and lead other people astray from God. Yes, the path might be longer for different positions and different levels of your image of God, but it will always end in the same way. It will always end in the same way. So remember that as we deal with each person that the Bible covers. Chapter 13, 33. After this happened, Jeroboam still did not change his evil ways. He continued to appoint common people as priests at the high places. Anyone who wanted the job, he considered he consecrated as priests. This sin caused Jeroboam's dynasty to come to an end and to be destroyed from the face of the earth. 